Spiro Groth Meditation Center, as you know, is uh, based on the study and practice of the teachings of the Buddha, which have been handed down human being to human being, woman to woman to man to woman for 2,500 years. And the teachings of the Buddha are always handed on in that human to human way. So even though nowadays, I'm sure, all sorts of information is available on the internet, and these days the volume of texts that have been published is incredible, actually, with what has been translated from Pali or Sanskrit or Tibetan or Chinese or Korean, still it's actually not possible to uh, wake up without a human-to-human interaction. That is the part of the transmission of the teachings of the Buddha, is having living human people to go back and forth about uh, what it is to be awake, what it is to be asleep. So um, my own human teacher was named Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, and uh, I thought tonight just to pick out a couple of things that he passed on and talked about, uh, the first being spiritual materialism, and the last being basic goodness. So I just thought to try and piece those together from spiritual materialism to basic goodness. And both of those might be familiar to many of you already because his earliest book here in North America, I think around 1974, was called Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. Would you raise your hand if you've seen that book or read that book or heard of that book? I'm just curious. It's, I think it's still in print. Shambhala still publishes that, yeah, Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. And then, mm, certainly toward the end of his life, there was much more emphasis on a set of teachings concerning what he called basic goodness. And those are found in what's really the last major book of his, which is called Shambhala, The Sacred Path of the Warrior. How many people, that book, the Shambhala book, we call it, on basic goodness? Yeah, yeah, so... Roughly the same. So both of those are familiar. So these two themes are actually connected, and that's what I thought I would try and say something about. Um, the earlier one, the issue of materialism, is something that I think was very striking to him uh, encountering the West, uh, which he did first in England when he was studying, and then coming to North America in the early 70s. Uh, it's probably difficult for us to, to, to see you know, how... Sh- Shocking it would probably be to someone from a nomadic culture, you know, in East Tibet, where, as he said, people had never seen an airplane or, 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 or you know, or even a tree in certain areas. Growing up in that kind of, really almost uh, like the Middle Ages and the monastic education and so forth, to then come to, you know, London in the 60s and then North America and <laughs> <laughs> it must have just been, you know... Uh, a real culture difference, right? Real culture shock. And so one of the most really outstanding things for him was a degree of materialism. So that even before coming to North America in 1968, he wrote a text that has a line in it that says, the materialistic outlook dominates everywhere. This was a long time ago, 40 years ago almost. The materialistic outlook dominates everywhere, which included Tibet and a certain corruption in the spirituality there that he felt that he'd seen, but then in the modern West as well, this rampant materialism. So 
materialistic outlook. What is the materialistic outlook or view? What is the viewpoint of materialism? Because the word materialism, we all know about consumer culture and that we live in societies that are largely materialistically based. But what is it that he's, what was the teaching, the Dharma teaching about this materialistic outlook? So just to say a little bit about what is the logic of materialism? The logic of materialism is that it's based on the sense that we lack something. There's some inadequacy, there's some vacancy, you could call it a hole, you could call it... There's something that we don't have, and the logic of materialism is that we could acquire something from outside, we could acquire something physical, we could acquire a set of ideas, or we could acquire some spiritual state that would make up for this lack, it would make up for something that's missing. And so he, in fact, discussed these three kinds of materialism, a physical materialism in which we use objects or we use nature to make up for this inner sense of emptiness, something's lacking, but if I own this, if I possess this, this will somehow fill up, make up for that that's lacking. And then a what you could call a materialism of ideas uh, in which we're involved with getting the right theory, getting the right idea about our own psychology, about politics in the world. So we check through various theories and what does Chomsky say about this or what's the viewpoint on this from this particular psychological theory. But the notion there is that by getting the right idea, there's something missing and so we're involved in a search for getting the right mm, concepts. So that one is a kind of intellectual materialism. And then finally, the title of the book, Spiritual Materialism. There's a sense of something lacking, and by means of certain spiritual practices, certain psychotherapeutic disciplines, I will be able to get a state of consciousness that will make up for this inner lack. So he saw, he observed, and he pointed to this materialism taking place in all these different ways, sometimes all three at once. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not developmental or gradual that after one, then you move on to the other, but we could be involved in all three of those at once. And the result of that involvement, to the degree that we become fixated on, I must get something, even if it's not a thing, even if it's something spiritual, which we understand is intangible, right? It's not actually, we can't actually buy one and take it home. Compassion box, right? We can't, <laughs> it's not actually, there isn't a box of that that we can have three of, and when one runs out, we can get the other one. Our involvement in materialism actually discourages us. It actually takes away some of our living vitality. So that the metaphor that he used for these three kinds of materialism, a metaphor that's there in the Tibetan tradition of Buddha Dharma, is that they are like lords. They were called the three lords of materialism. So just the way that one could be in bondage to a lord, the effect of our getting caught up in materialism is that we are imprisoned. One might even say enslaved in trying to acquire something from outside ourselves. And so we feel that as a kind of uh, even if we recognize, well, I'd like to free myself from that, what could I do to free myself from that? We can also get involved in 
materialistically pursuing that freedom, right? So that that becomes another kind of bondage. So it's trickier than it seems how we might step out of spiritual materialism, psychological materialism, material materialism. So sometime in the mid to late 70s and early 80s, Trungpa began teaching on basic goodness. And this seemed to me the very opposite of materialism. The teaching of basic goodness is that we have some fundamental wisdom and compassion as our very nature. Nature, as in the sky, is nature. There isn't a company that's the sky company, and we pay a monthly fee to the, right? That doesn't exist. Not yet, right. It doesn't exist yet. <laughs> But that's part of our appreciation for nature is that it is unproduced, it is spontaneous, it's what's naturally there. And so the teaching was that we have an original nature that's fundamentally kind, wakeful, and brave. And this was puzzling to me, this, this teaching, because if just even the, you know, the smallest glance at human history or the 20th century you don't think that this is, these are the actions of beings who are fundamentally kind and wise and compassionate, right? We don't have to look very far to find examples that seem to go against that. But the teaching is that even if that is our fundamental nature, it's been covered over in various ways, much as the clouds, often in the morning in this part of the world, can cover over the sun. But the teaching is that the, nonetheless, the sun is fundamentally there already. It's not an acquisition. It's not something that through practicing meditation we will gain this nature, this original goodness. But it is possible that meditation might be a way of clearing away the clouds and allowing that goodness to flower or develop or come out. It may sound like a very tiny difference, right? What's the difference between whether you are approaching it as there's something lacking and I will get something to fill that that's lacking, or whether you approach it from the point of view of there is a fundamental, I have the same nature as all the awakened ones, all the women and men throughout history who fully awakened, that is truly our own nature as well. But all the Buddhas have always uncovered that nature. They've all walked a path to uncovering that. So it may seem like a small difference but it turns out to matter quite a lot. The, the materialistic outlook, uh, someone, people have been sending me sayings by the great yogi, Yogi Berra. And, and, and I, I don't really know if, these, if Yogi Berra actually said these things or not, but recently one of them was, one can never get enough of what does not satisfy. <laughs> we can never get enough of what does not satisfy. So a materialistic engagement is not satisfying. We, we find ourselves thirstier than when we began. It, it's very similar to the logic of addiction. You know, now neuroscientists are saying, well, what happens with addiction is you, you feel less sense of well-being, you abuse a particular substance, and then the level of your well-being is actually lowered. You have less ability to feel just a fundamental sense of sanity and well-being at being alive without that substance. So materialism altogether is like that addiction, that we feel less of our own well-being to the degree that we get involved in grasping for something outside ourselves, or it could even be grasping for something inside ourselves. And so the opposite of that is somehow this sense of 
an original nature of kindness, equanimity, joy, compassion. So those are two themes that are, seem important. Ah, oh, refreshing. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Galen had said that he was going to speak on these themes, um, and so I reflected about them as well. And I had a few other things to say, so I may talk a little longer than you did. Forgive me, it's just one of my bad habits. But <laughs> then maybe we can talk together. Um, I first met uh, Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche in 1972, and listening to you made me very happy because I could hear the echoes of his voice in, in your wisdom and your words. I met him actually at a cocktail party. He was <laughs> drinking very well at that time <laughs> at David McClellan's house. David was the chairman of the Department of Psychology at Harvard, um, and David was the person. David had been to India, David and Mary, and this huge house in Cambridge. Um, Dan Goldman lived in the house. Um, uh, David was the person who had hired Ramdas to, to, as Richard Alpert to teach at Harvard for a while. David was also the person that fired Ramdas later on <laughs> after the LSD experiments. Um, but his home was a place uh, that really invited the the trans the people who are involved in a kind of inner transformation of life to come. And Chogyam Trumpa came there periodically. Um, and we had a very deep and wonderful connection from early on. Um, and Jogim Trumpa actually became a great benefactor for myself, for Joseph Goldstein, for Sharon Salzberg, for all of us who began teaching Vipassana and insight meditation in America. We all, many of us, got together and started at the founding of Naropa Buddhist University in 1974 through Jogim Trumpa and Ramdas. And so it, 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 I think of him as very much a not only a friend and an inspiration, but a benefactor. And part of what I loved about him was that he had this blend of dignity and spontaneity. He was spontaneous as a calligrapher and a poet and a genius with language in many ways, um, and not sanctimonious at all. You know, it was not spiritual materialism as his vision was. Um, what he taught was not some kind of outer imitation that one does but more to discover the possibility of living in the reality of the present with a free heart. And he reminded me a great deal of Ajahn Chah, the teacher I'd studied with in the forest monasteries, or now being with His Holiness the Dalai Lama. There's this kind of laughter, I call it the laughter of the wise. Um, because even in the constraints of the monastery with Ajahn Chah, with all the monks' rules, and um, the order of the monastery, there was something about his spirit and being that was freer than people who had no rules at all. It was the inner freedom. And like Ajahn Chah, Chogyam Trumpa, when you met him, he would kind of peer at you, like a, like a watchmaker kind of taking off the cover and kind of seeing, well, who's in there? You know? And even if you came with your fear or your shame or your suffering or your artifice, he didn't seem to be afraid of that, as Ajahn Chah was not afraid because he knew that that's not who we really are. There was some way of his attention to a person that saw what Thomas Merton called the secret beauty, or this basic goodness. Um, 
And it's a beautiful thing to meet someone and you have all these ideas. Here's this Tibetan Lama or this you know, great Thai forest meditation teacher. And you have all these ideas about yourself or them. And they look at you and it's as if they see something that's so beautiful and pure in you beyond all the trying or externals or fears or, or unworthiness or whatever uh, we put on on the outside. Um, and so it was quite magical in a way to meet him and feel that similarity in a way with the teacher that I'd studied with. Now, even though this isn't exactly a segue um, to it, um, this last, uh, a couple of days ago, this last weekend, we had a big temple festival here, which in a certain way was very much in the spirit of Chogyam Trumpa because he, had a, he also had a celebratory uh, feel to him about teaching. Um, and part of what's interesting, and I, I, hopefully I can weave it around and connect, is that um, if you go to a temple in Thailand or Burma, instead of the kind of very serious sitting and walking and meditation that we have here at Spirit Rock and that you find in a few very fine retreat centers in those countries, most of the temples, instead of serious practitioners um, quietly meditating, are filled with devotion and chanting and song and joy and fortune-telling and great art and the, the walls are covered with incredible paintings and there's Dharma theater. And there are also the sanctuaries and the places of community meetings and the places of education and service and so forth. Um, and so we've taken one part, which we desperately needed in this culture, of sitting quietly and remembering to listen. But all the rest of that is really surrounding the meditation in the countries of Tibet or Thailand or Burma. Um, and we had then this benefit ball uh, which was also a celebration of my 60th birthday, the next celebration. There have been a few of them. I'm, I really feel 60 now, so okay, I got it. I got it. All right, okay, accept. I, I'm here. And, it, and, and it, was, it, was, it was magical. It was done as a benefit, and it raised $125,000 for the next buildings and stewardship that we have to do here at Spear Rock. So it was and quite successful. And you came and it was kind of magical. There was a, a man who called himself the bubble smith on the walkway here who was blowing these body-sized bubbles as the wind kind of came through his hoops. And you walked past the bubble smith and then there was a Thai from, from the Thai temple in Berkeley, a, a temple orchestra with these beautiful um, gold and silk dressed Thai maidens doing temple dances as you came up. And all these great silk banners and um, Joan Baez sang and got everybody to sing together, and there was wonderful dancing and music and things like that. And some people were really a little bit weirded out by it because <laughs> they were used to being in the meditation hall in a silent, if not sanctimonious, way. <laughs> and I said, you know, it's really my karma because when I was ordained as a monk, I'd lived in the Peace Corps in these medical teams in Thailand and worked in the Mekong River Valley. And before I went to live with Ajahn Chah, I'd been studying as a layman with him, um, I ordained at the royal temple that was in the town near my village. And uh, this wonderful old abbot ordained me, and all my friends came and so forth. And a day or two after I ordained and was learning to wear my robes without them falling off, basically the first training you have, um, <laughs> they had the annual temple festival. 
and it was filled with all these things and music and fortune tellers and great food and so forth. And I was pissed. <laughs> I came here to meditate, right, to get enlightened, you know, and I thumb through my monk's books and say, doesn't, in the monk's rules, it doesn't say anything about temple festivals. And I was getting more upset because it didn't fit my idea. Finally, I went to this old abbot, you know, and I got really steamed up, and I brought my books, and I said, see here. And he just looked at me. He said, well, if you insist, you can go off to the forest and meditate. You'll understand later, you know. <clears throat> so there's a story, actually, which some of you have heard um, of an old abbot. This is in a different tradition. Um, and the new young novice, his job was to copy the old um, chant books and texts. And so he was copying them out um, as the, from the worn-out copies. And it occurred to him that they could get corrupted over the generations because each one was copied from the last one. So he went to the abbot and he said, do we have the original texts? Could we look at these, please? Just so that we don't perpetuate the mistakes. The abbot said, well, they're locked up. They're in, you know, in the special vault and so forth. He said, please, please, and insisted. So finally the abbot said, all right, I will go and take them out. We don't take them out. It's very, very rare. So he went down to the vaults and he unwrapped and took out these great old texts and was looking at them. And he didn't come back for a long time. And finally the young novice monk kind of went down and found the abbot. The abbot was there with his head in his hands weeping. And he said, Abba, you know, Abbot, Ajahn, what, are you okay? What's the matter? And the abbot looked up and he said, oh no. He said, the word was celebrate, not celibate. So we had this temple festival, <laughs> and there was a tremendous spirit of joy and celebration. And over the years, what I've learned as a teacher is that the spirit of loving kindness and compassion and the spirit of joy is critical in practice. The heart doesn't become at ease, even with the sorrows that we bring. Um, the development of concentration and stillness and openness comes so much more accessibly when they're lubricated with a spirit of joy and ease and, um, and, and loving-kindness than a kind of grim duty. Um, and it was also beautiful as one of my friends who was uh, one of the hosts, um, of the honorary hosts of this said, just seeing people dressed up in tuxes, it was black tie, and people who you wouldn't, you know, who kind of walk around wearing work shirts and old hippie clothes and stuff, all dressed up in their, in their tux. They were so handsome and dignified. And there was just this sense of um, changing the outer form allowed for some of that basic goodness, that beauty, to shine. Now, Ajahn Chah told me a story, and I, I have a, you know, some parallel teachings now to, to what Galen spoke of. When I was first at his monastery, um, he talked about a great big statue of the Buddha in northern Thailand that had been famous um, and a place of worship um, for, oh, seven or eight hundred years. It was covered in um, clay and then painted. It wasn't particularly handsome but because it had survived wars and government changes and epidemics and all those things, and it was still there, um, people really venerated it. 
And every hundred years or so, it would dry out and crack, and they would have to fill it in and repaint it. Um, and that year, um, it was dried out with little cracks, and one of the young novices there, or the monks, decided to see, how did they make this thing, you know, a thousand years ago? So he took his flashlight and he peeked in the crack. They didn't have flashlights a hundred years ago the last time they were doing this. And the, the minute he did so, there was this beautiful golden light that shined out of it. And then he was surprised, and he peeked in another crack, and there was this golden light that shined out. And when they explored further, they found that inside was the largest golden image of the Buddha that was ever cast in that part of Southeast Asia, that had been hidden inside for all those years, hidden so that it wouldn't get stolen during the various changes of regime, regime changes and so forth has happened. Um, and finally it was uncovered, and now it's a place of, of, again, great pilgrimage. And he smiled and he said, this is the way that it is. We have on the surface our fears and confusions and, and uh, um, what's sometimes described as the small sense of self, um, the, the, our belief about ourself um, that we've been taught or that's happened, and that underneath um, all the worries and thoughts and and misunderstandings is this, what he called the original mind, jit dharma, or the, the, the beauty of our true nature. He says, when you understand, you discover that the Buddha was, um, that the true Buddha, the eye of wisdom, is timeless and unborn and unrelated to any physical being or history. The Buddha is the ground of our being, the truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was never enlightened in India. In fact, he was not enlightened at all. He was never born and he never died. And this timeless Buddha is our own true home, our abiding place. It is this that we discover in meditation. And we take refuge in the Buddha. All things in the world become free for us. So I heard Chogyam Trumpa Rinpoche give these teachings. And it was, there was a way in which it was like coming home. But we forget them. Robert Johnson, the Jungian analyst, writes, Curiously, people resist their noble aspects of the shadow more strenuously than they hide their dark sides. It is more disrupting to find you have a profound nobility of character than to find out you are a bum. (laughs) Because it really means you have to change your life and live in in a different way. And so we have all these accretions, if you will, of ways we think of ourselves. There was a study that was done in England, a psychological study in a school, where they have the different level of exams, the O levels and A levels and things, which, which track people, basically. And so you take the exams and you're either put in the university-bound class or you're put in the sort of trade school group or you're, you know, you're put down with the students who aren't very good, depending how you do on the exam. And, and you know that kind of nonsense happens here a lot. Um, no child left untested, basically, is the, um, sorry to say. And, um, but in this particular study, unbeknownst to the teachers and principal and faculty and so forth, um, uh, a couple of psychologists with the secret help of the superintendent went in and took the test results and mixed them up completely and put kids who'd done very badly on the tests and those who'd done very well mix them up um, at random and assign them to the highest class and the lowest class. 
And then two years later, they had to take the next level of tests. And duh, as you can imagine, the class that thought that they were at the top of the heap and that were taught in that way all did A-level testing. So there's a way in which we have been conditioned, whether it's through the insanity of racism or class or the psychological conditioning of our family or community, to not remember who we really are, to forget this basic dignity or this, again, this secret beauty. And what meditation offers us is a way to remember this. We sit with a certain presence and dignity. We sit like the Buddha under our tree of enlightenment. And then we begin to see all the different stories that come, the fears that come, the unworthiness. Remember what Mark Twain said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortunes, most of which never happened. And, and you see how the mind just does its thing. You know, the pain, the loss, the gain, the, the sadness, the ambitions, all the things that come, what are called the 10,000 joys and sorrows of life. And, the, and underneath it is the capacity to bow to them and say, yes, this too. And there starts to be a shift of identity from being lost in all those stories to being the space within which all of this arises and passes, what Ajahn Chah called the one who knows, the space of knowing. And he said, as in the text, the Majjhima Nikaya, where the Buddha says to his son Rahula, make your mind like the sky, be the space that receives all things without being disturbed by it. And there comes this, as you meditate, there then comes this trust and this dignity and also this sweetness. The poet Ikkyu says, what is it, this heart? It is the breeze there in the bay laurels outside the window. Or in his case, it was some Japanese pine tree. <laughs> but it's really the same. And so Ajahn Chah's teacher, Ajahn Man, pointed him to the nature of his mind, said all these different states will come and go sad and happy and feeling deficient, as Galen talked about, and nervous and wanting and not wanting. And, and what we are invited to do is to become the space of awareness that witnesses all that arises and passes in a timeless way, to see with the eye of wisdom to sit as the Buddha. And as we do, we begin to return to that golden form, see all the different coverings and, you know, um, joys and sorrows, praise and blame, gain and loss that come. And from the place of the Buddha nature within us, we begin to see with the eyes of wisdom. Now at our temple festival, we had fortune tellers and tarot card readers and numerologists and aura readers, and we did it up. I mean, it was really fun. I said, so I, this is what I kept from my tux, this little red, uh, you know. And, um, and it was really uh, a pleasure and very good dance music. Um, and um, Ajahn Chah was really against fortune telling because it was popular for people to go to the great yogis and ask for lottery numbers. That was the basic thing. Okay, if you're a really good yogi, you should be able to tell me the lottery number and then all my troubles will be over. Um, as a little aside, most of you probably know the psychological studies of people who won the lottery um, uh, two or three or four years after they received their million or ten million dollars. And it turns out after three years that they psychologically 
measure being about as happy as they were before they won the lottery. If they were very happy, they had the money and they're still very happy. And if they were depressed or not terribly happy or in struggle with the world, three year, years later after they got their $10 million, they're still depressed or in struggle or with the world because it's not the external things that really make the heart free. So finally, one really devoted disciple came to Ajahn Chah and begged him, please, please, would you read my palm? Would you tell my fortune? And to everyone's surprise, Ajahn Chah said yes. You know, and you remember sitting around, the, he never did this. He was always kind of putting it down as being materialistic. And he took the man's palm and he held it and he looked it in the light and, mm, and he studied it and, uh, and you were getting really excited. Okay, what is he going to say? And finally he looked at him and he said, you know, I, I see, I see the future for you deeply in your hand. Yes, you know, hang on. He said, things are about to change. <laughs> As Suzuki Roshi said, when we realize the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. And this was really the teaching of Ajahn Chah. Um, he talked about how the cup is already broken. You have this beautiful Japanese teacup. You know, and if you worry about it all the time, what kind of life is that? He said, you hold it up, you know that it's going to break someday. I hold this beautiful cup up, I know it's already broken, so I enjoy it tremendously. To see with the eyes of wisdom is to see the uncertainty, the inevitability of change. He called it my that things are always changing. Things are about to change. And that instead of being lost in the changing circumstances, we can rest in the heart. We can rest in the place of wisdom in our own true nature, in the Buddha nature. And as we do, as we open to this, we begin to realize that this great heart of the Buddha, when we come back to our wisdom, is also filled with compassion, as Galen said, with loving kindness. Um, a little story some of you have heard. Imagine walking along a sidewalk with your arms full of groceries and someone roughly bumps into you, so you fall and your groceries are strewn all over the ground. And as you rise up from the puddle of broken eggs and tomato juice, you're ready to shout out, you idiot, what's wrong with you, are you blind? But just before you can catch your breath to speak, you see that the person who bumped into you actually is blind. And he too is sprawled there in the spilled groceries and the eggs and the tomato juice. And your anger vanishes in an instant replaced by sympathetic concern. Are you hurt? Can I help you up? Our human situation is like this. When we clearly realize that the source of disharmony and misery and suffering in the world is blindness, is ignorance, that opens the door of wisdom and compassion. And so as we sit, as we become the witness to the joys and sorrows which keep changing the pleasure and pain and gain and loss, there grows so naturally in us the compassion for those who are still caught thinking something outside them will make them happy. When we realize that the, the real well-being, the contentment, the wholeness of being is who we already are. 
and that compassion is for others, but it's equally important for ourselves. Sometimes people hear the word compassion and they think it means you have to take care of everybody else. You know, you become a martyr and codependent. But one Tibetan Lama said to me, I don't think it was Chogyam Trim, but it might have been, that in the, I think it was the Dalai Lama actually, that in the Tibetan language the word for compassion doesn't leave out yourself. That the circle is incomplete without you in it as well. If you're taking care of all these people and that one other person, you remember who, moi, as Miss Piggy would say, if that one is left out, then it's not real compassion. It has to include this one here as well. Now one teacher of mine said it's good to get people to laugh in a Dharma talk because when they do, they, their mouths are open and you can pop in little pills of wisdom. Right? <laughs> So anyway, I've taken a lot more time than Galen. Um, um, forgive me for that. Um, but it is an honor to have you here and to, to um, be inspired by the teachings of Chogyam Trumpa. And um, let us continue. Anything you want to add or comment on or ask or whatever? Or if not, I'll ask you something. <laughs> Why don't you go ahead then? <laughs> Hmm. What are the teachings that have been most important to you? Have they changed over the years in your own personal practice? I think originally the, the most important thing was the teaching about suffering. I, I, um, somehow the fact that uh, in the teachings of the Buddha that's placed as square one, that we acknowledge that we do have a dissatisfaction, we have an anxiety, that we have some underlying... Uh, that, that was, a, that was a very important and very attractive to me. It, it's true um, Rinpoche would give talks on the Four Noble Truths beginning with suffering and uh, find humor in the middle of somehow our human condition and human situation. So, um, after that, I suppose, then some sense of how much we, sh we hold that in common, that this is, this is human suffering and, and uh, we raise our gaze a little bit and we see how much others are suffering as well and, and uh, what would it be possible to do about that. How about for you? What would you? <laughs> that, was a, that was a really important one. It, it was so refreshing to meet Ajahn Chah and the first thing that he said to me in the gates of the monastery when I came as a monk after being there as a layman, he said, well, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. Hmm. I thought, well, that's a weird greeting, right? Hoping <laughs> for something better than that. And then he explained, he said, there are two kinds of suffering. The kind that you run away from, and that follows you everywhere. And the kind that you're willing to turn around and face and find freedom. Um, he said, and that's the kind we're interested here. So if you're interested in that, please come in. And I remember actually hearing Chogyam Trumpa give teachings of uh, a whole series of teachings in Boston in 1972 and three. And at one point, I, I actually got a little bit um, uh, annoyed with him, I think, is the, because it, I, I thought he was making it sound like, well, all right, the Tibetan teachings are really better than the other kinds of Buddhism. You know, there's this kind of, my Buddha's bigger than yours or something like that <laughs> that happens sometimes among different traditions. 
And so I raised my hand, you know, Rinpoche, um, because um, I had just come from the training where the Four Noble Truths were really so central. And I said, are you saying that um, you have in your tradition of Buddhism something more than or outside the Four Noble Truths? And he paused, as he always did, and he said, uh, everything that, the, that, that, that we Buddhists have received, that we teach, falls within this great um, understanding of the Four Noble Truths. And then he looked at me and he said, good luck, sir. <laughs> but it was so helpful to hear about suffering, because otherwise you think it's a problem, that you're doing something wrong because you're suffering. And you're not. It's just woven into Anybody not have it? You can have your $8 back, right? <laughs> it's part of life, joy and sorrow. And to know that is a tremendous relief to the heart. So that was important. And then when you talked about um, seeing that it's not mine, but it's our human condition, that it's universal. Metta and compassion practice have been terribly important for me also to learn um, what it means to really see the beauty and the love in, in each person that I meet. So that's been terribly important. And learning to have more joy, relaxing, and not taking it as seriously. Um, may I ask you another question? Certainly. Um, here you are teaching the retreat for people of color, and um, in my life, uh, certainly as a teacher, it's become um, a, a really important uh, area of and, and concern of both how to make Dharma teachings available to anyone who is interested, and also, quite honestly, how to use the dignity and the, the, the courage of the Dharma to address um, the pain of racism and the ignorance in our society. I mean, I always imagine and think of what it's like to grow up as a child in a culture, in a racist culture, um, where all of a sudden somebody looks at you at some point in your age and sees you by your color and has all these ideas and thoughts about you, how completely insane that is, um, or class, or various other things. Um, uh, and it seems like Dharma is really a medicine for that. And so I wonder what you have discovered or what you know. Hmm. Well, certainly in my own healing, Dharma has been the central way of dealing with uh, internalized oppression and having some insight about the cycles of uh, that I think people from all different kinds of groups are, that everyone suffers in their particular way. And so Dharma, in that sense, is is this incredible gift that's handed down to us, whatever our particular situation of some way of waking up from the nightmarish aspects of that, when you just put it that way. The nightmare of materialism, or the nightmare of sexism, or the nightmare of racism. Dharma is a way of waking up from that. So in one sense, Dharma seems like it's Dharma. So in the retreat, we're teaching the four limitless ones of loving kindness, compassion, equanimity, and joy. And at the same time, it does seem really important, and I'm grateful to Spirit Rock for uh, really doing some pioneering work in allowing conferences of Asian American and Pacific Islanders and so forth. I think uh, that kind of uh, generosity in making the Dharma available uh, is, is really important work. So uh, I'm grateful to Spirit Rock for what you've done in that area. Well, I'm grateful you're here. 
um, very much as well. Feels very important. Um, yeah. Yeah, you spoke briefly about addiction. Could you go into more detail about that? Mm -hmm. Question about addiction. Yes. What I was suggesting was that the logic of materialism and the materialistic outlook and then the materialistic practice, if we view things a certain way, that there is some, something missing, there's some fundamental lack of joy, then our practice falls from that. Practice in the sense of what we do in our life will be, how will I get moments of joy? How will I acquire this joy? So it's, it's just like the Eightfold Path of the Buddha. That you have a view, and then you have the discipline and the mindfulness that come from that view. So likewise, if you have wrong view, that there's something wrong with me fundamentally or lacking, then we'll do things to, well, how can I fill that up? And the part that's like addiction is that the more we engage in that, the more we engage in looking for something, seeking for something outside ourselves, it seems to have the effect. The net effect is that it lowers our sense of basic joy, let's say. So, so that's, that's how it's similar to substance abuse, which evidently, you know, chemically, the person is less able to feel just a basic pleasure of being alive or of enjoying you know, a glass of water. Very, very simple things, but somehow the goodness is in the details, in a sense. I mean, it, our life is made up of very small moments, in a way. It's not just the big peaks and valleys of drama, like on movies or a television show. So that ability to appreciate our day-to-day, -day, waking up and being alive and appreciating one's family and loved ones and friends and work and so forth, that basic well-being that's what materialism under, undermines. Because it, you, we don't see an ad in which they say, you're fine and buy this, right? <laughs> you're basically good and you need one of these, right? It's, it's all that you will have friends and people will like you and you'll be successful if you acquire. That's the whole logic of how that works, right? So if, it imprisons us in that way. I'll, let me uh, let me add something to what Galen said, and, and then we'll take the, the next question. Um, one of the beautiful things, one of the beautiful things to see on retreat, after a few days as people get settled and quiet, is the kind of joy that returns mm -hmm. that you talked about, where you go out for walking meditation, and you put your foot down on the grass or on the on the earth and and all of a sudden it feels like you're two years old again. Or you take a cup of tea, and there's nothing else to do but feel the warmth of the tea in your hands, and smell its flavor, and feel it as it touches your lips, and you become so much more alive to the reality of the present. Um, and I remember on a recent retreat, there was I was working with a, a, several people who had had histories of eating disorders, speaking of different kinds of addiction. Um, and one of the main practices was an eating meditation of just slowing down and really tasting and savoring and being there with every part of the process of eating. Um, and it was both revelatory and terribly helpful to them because part of the eating disorder, I mean, it's not an easy thing, it's terribly painful and difficult, but it's almost like going into a certain trance in which the food isn't tasted but it becomes a substitute for something else that's that's missing feeding the hungry heart, as someone said, inside. So there's this 
beautiful medicine of the Dharma, as you speak of, that just brings us back to the, to the present. Um, yes, there's a question. Do you want to repeat the question, Jim? <laughs> okay, I'll repeat the question. You can do what you like as an answer, and then I'll, I'll follow. The, the question, which was a very important one, was, was uh, she comes from a family that's very diverse, and her children married into a Hawaiian family, and some of the people in her family identify as being people of color, and some of them don't. Some of them think it's completely un-Buddhist and foolish to have such a category. and. Um, you know, why separate people out? Why have a retreat for people of color or not? How does that fit in with the Dharma? That's the, the gist of the question, if I got it right. Please. Is that Jean? Is, is that, she's nodding, yeah, okay. I suppose the issue is diversity and diversity of access. Um, within my own Sangha, people also ask me the same question of why would you need such a thing? Um, at the retreat, uh, the people, half the people are new, and uh, so today we met with them in small groups. And they talked about senses of safety, that they felt able to open up to themselves in their meditation practice. So I think it's similar to perhaps we have retreats sometimes that are for women and women only. This has to do with certain groups and uh, their sense of uh, what they're pushing against a lot of the time. Um, Tradition, as far as locating this in the tradition, I suppose it would have to do with skillful means. Uh, one of the things we notice in this retreat is that some people who, their initial retreat, they needed to be people of color retreat, then go on to retreats that are many colors, or many whatever kind of people. They feel strong enough and, and uh, confident enough in their practice that they can engage in that way. But as an initial stepping stone for them, many of them say, it was very important for me to be able to have this kind of gathering in which um, 
I could let down some of the usual def you know, defense against what's coming at me. So I don't think it's just California in terms of North America that has uh, issues of male domination, white supremacy, class oppression. I mean, uh, the America that I read the history of includes all of that <laughs> as part of its history. And I could recommend Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States if we needed to look for what is the actual history of this land that we find ourselves walking on. So it's partly historical in that way that we now have a development in which we take these uh, social factors, the karma of our time and the karma of where we are, and we see what is the way of being generous and compassionate to work with them. So um, that would be... Do you have comments of why at Spirit Rock do you have such a radical thing? <laughs> and I, I think it's a beautiful question, and, and actually that there's wisdom in both sides. Um, but I have a, a, a story that goes back to the time of Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche, the first couple of summers at Naropa Buddhist University. And there's 2,000 people and huge classes, and it was both both dharmic and festive and so forth. And we were meeting as faculty, a number of us as teachers. Um, and it turned out that most of the people who were running the school and the senior faculty and so forth were guys. Um, and after, you know, a year or so, there started to be this burgeoning uh, women's um, concern from the women who are, why were women not included in an equal way. And Buddhism has a long history of patriarchy um, that's quite painful if you actually go into the cultures of Thailand or Burma or Tibet and so forth. And it is also having to work its way through that. Um, and uh, we had these heated faculty meetings and women were complaining. And I remember Trumpa Rinpoche said, but in the Dharma it's all equal, you know. Um, didn't, he didn't get away with that, actually. <laughs> he tried that one. And uh, I mean, Mirabai Bush said, well, if it's all equal, then how come it's all men sitting up there? <laughs> and I, I'll tell you a story, just because I'm on a roll here for a moment. Um, we were with uh, the Dalai Lama. I was the moderator for a whole series of meetings of Buddhist teachers from the West and Asia um, in Dharamsala, oh, about a dozen or, or more years ago. And this issue, I'm talking about women, but there's a real parallel, as you can hear. I'll get to that in people of color. Um, the issue of the place of women in Buddhism. Why, were, why are there women's retreats? Why do women need more attention? And the, the patriarchy, the oppression came up. And various nuns said, you know, in the monastery, we were on the outside. We didn't get teachings. We didn't have food. The monks in Tibet, these monasteries were taking care of. The women weren't, and so forth. Um, and you just don't understand. And finally, Sylvia Wetzel, who's a very brave and wonderful teacher from Germany, uh, stood up and said, Your Holiness, I know this is presumptuous, but may I please teach you a short meditation? Um, and everybody said, Okay, this is cool. Let's see what happens here. <laughs> right? so, she, so she asked the Dalai Lama, and he was surrounded by a number of his advisors and senior Rinpoche's and the whole thing, would you please close your eyes for a, for a visualization for five minutes? So she had them all close their eyes. And we were in this beautiful room in his palace that had pictures of all the great um, yogis and mahasiddhas and you know, bodhisattvas around in the big shrine. And after she got us to close our eyes and feel the room, she said, now I would like you to imagine that you're in this very same room 
with all the same wonderful Buddhist teachers, only there's one tiny change that's been made because you are seated in front of the 14th Dakini Dalai Lama who always comes back in a feminine form because the female body is the wisest and most skillful in teaching the Dharma in the world. And she is surrounded by all of her senior Rinpoche's and advisors who all come back reincarnated in female form because the female form gives birth to the world and so can teach us the way to care for the world as a bodhisattva. And when you look up at all the images on the altars there uh, and on the walls, they are the 16 great female Mahasiddhas and the great Bodhisattvas, all in female incarnation. And of course we welcome men. Um, it's all right if they, would, if they would sit in the back, if they don't mind a little bit, and we'd like some help in the kitchen afterwards, you know. Um, but men are welcome, and they come in, and they, you know, they bow, and they prostrate, and they see in front of them the beautiful wisdom of the female lineage that's been carried this way for thousands of years. And she stopped. And these guys, eyes open, like, what? <laughs> what? It was like, what hit me? Um, it was a very educational moment. Because in the, within the culture, and the Dalai Lama is sensitive to this and has done a lot of things to try to make a difference for women. But within that culture, the conditioning and the oppression was really very deep. And so we found, whether it was at Naropa or here, that it was terribly important to have women's retreats because of the, the history of oppression. And for certain women, as you said, the safety made it possible to listen, to speak, to, to, to be able to be with people who understood things that allowed their Dharma heart to open. And then they went on to other things. The same, the first time we had a retreat in this room for um, people of color that I led with, together with a few other um, friends, um, I remember, I thought, oh, we'll do this once and then we'll have an integrated kind of retreat. And first this guy stood up, there were 50 or 60 people, and he said, I feel so at home finally. He said, I feel like I'm with my people because I'm the only black Buddhist vegetarian doctor that I know, <laughs> you know. And he was so relieved in some way um, to feel that there was a community that shared his culture and that also understood the history of oppression that he'd been with and where he felt safe to speak about certain things that eventually could then be integrated in the Dharma. So yes, we are all the same, and it's a folly to think that we're different in any way. Your question is really quite right. And yes, also we are different. And part of what's, what wisdom carries is the ability to both respect the essential Buddha nature of every being, the secret beauty, and also to respect our differences. And when they're both respected, um, then, you know, your children, the one who identifies as a person of color, come to that retreat, and the one who doesn't come to the other retreat, we welcome them all. Yes, please. So the question is uh, that I, in, in beginning, mentioned Spirit Rock Meditation Center and genuine spirituality, and the question is, well, that implies that there are forms of spirituality that are inauthentic or spurious or made up or not genuine traditions. And so the further question was, how would one uh, decide, distinguish, distinguish? Yeah, you would have to trust your own heart and head to do that. I I don't usually comment on anyone else's tradition because I have never practiced in that, you know, in any other tradition. So, but um, at the time that Trungpa Rinpoche was writing about spiritual materialism, he often talked about charlatans, 
charlatanism, that people were teaching things that were beyond what they actually were qualified and authorized and could genuinely transmit to other people. So, um, as he said to Jack, good luck. You know, good luck to us all in terms of keeping that separate. And I suppose there's not only other deception, but there's deceiving ourselves. That we are we genuinely practicing, are genuinely engaging, and genuinely opening, or are we using spirituality? This is the issue of spiritual materialism. Are we using spirituality in some way to honor ourselves more, to to become to strengthen our sense of selfishness rather than to strengthen our sense of compassion? So it's an issue for all of us. I remember that question also being asked to the Dalai Lama in some form or other. Um, and much like what you said, Galen, he said, um, a, a beautiful measure is to look at your own character in life. Mm-hmm. And not for a short time, but over three years, five years, ten years, is there growing compassion? Is there growing patience? Is there growing um, uh, freedom even in the midst of difficulty? If there is, if these qualities of the Bodhisattva are growing in you, then it's a beautiful path. And if they're not, then... Um, Look elsewhere. And Chogyam Trimpa wrote the foreword in 1973 to this first book that I did on the teachers of uh, living Buddhist masters, it was called at that time, Teachers of Burma and Thailand. Much as you said, uh, Galen, he said, only through personal meditative practice is the student of Dharma enabled to slow down the speed of neurotic mind and to begin to see the world with clarity and precision. Without this, they will only be able to increase their confusion and perpetuate their grasping for self-confirmation. Without meditation or self-reflection, there is no approach to genuine sanity or path to enlightenment or dharma. The practice of meditation presents itself as an especially powerful discipline for the shrinking world of modern world. The age of technology would like also to produce a spiritual gadgetry new, improved spirituality guaranteed to bring quick results. Charlatans manufacture their versions of Dharma, advertising miraculous, easy ways, rather than the steady and heartfelt and demanding personal journey, which has always been essential to genuine spiritual practice. He goes on, it's this genuine tradition embodied by the teachers in this book as an unbroken lineage of transformation, and the teachings of these and other such masters The example of their lives provides inspiration and impetus for all of us to discover the great heart of the Buddha within ourselves. I think with that, that we will conclude our evening with a little chant. And um, first, uh, again, some words of gratitude to you, Galen, for coming here both to lead the retreat and then coming Monday night and for the clarity and refreshing light of your teachings. And thank you very much for the stories of Ajahn Chah. I feel oh. that both our devotion to our teachers and it shows really the, the same wisdom of the Buddha that's been handed down and we were very lucky to have good teachers. We were very lucky. <laughs> we were very lucky.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.